If you were unable to attend this year's Making the Case conference, we have good news for you. We've produced a recording of each of the speakers' presentations, all of the worship services, and the hymn sing. You can watch an on-demand video stream or download a podcast for a contribution of $300 to Issues Etc. by Labor Day. Learn more at issuesetc.org or make your $300 check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. I avoid using pronouns for transgender identifying persons, and I reject the new vocabulary because I've seen the suffering to which it leads. I often compare Mormonism to like a a pressure cooker, but it's got no release valve. And they just keep turning up the heat, try harder and keep improving, keep striving. The Holy Spirit doesn't use errors. He doesn't use false statements. And confidence in certain false statements might actually land you in hell instead of in heaven. Our greatest problem is not suffering. It's suffering and dying without Christ. Higher things attendees receiving free copies of Objections Overruled, Love, Issues, Etc. A longtime Issues, Etc. guest, Dr. Paul Meyer, is fond of saying that The spade is the Bible's best friend. He's talking about biblical archaeology. Well, are there limits to biblical archaeology? Can we say that archaeology proves certain claims or accounts of the Bible true or merely elucidates those accounts? What are the limits of biblical archaeology? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Friday afternoon, August 25th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be discussing those limits with Dr. David Adams of Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Then, Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us for part five of our series, Kids Have Questions. We'll talk about relationships. Dr. David Adams is professor of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. He's author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Limits of Archaeology, What It Can't Tell Us. Dr. Adams, welcome back. Always great to be with you. Thank you, Todd. How does biblical archaeology fit into the task of Christian apologetics? Yeah, that's a very interesting way of phrasing the question, because I think if you put that question to most archaeologists, they would probably have to stop and think about it, because they don't really think of what they're doing into archaeology primarily in terms of apologetics. They think of it mostly in terms of getting to know, to understand the world of the Bible better. Uh, They're not thinking necessarily of how that understanding is going to be used or or might be used by others. So, you know, the, the apologetic task is not one that most archaeologists, even most conservative Christian archaeologists, would have in focus as they do their work. So it's more of an application of what archaeologists do rather than sort of a direct activity associated with archaeology, if that distinction makes any sense, you know, as I've articulated. You say that archaeology neither proves the Bible nor argues someone into the Christian faith. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is simply this. Archaeology never proves anything, actually, uh, or very little. What archaeology does is provide data, and that data has to be interpreted within 
a framework within an understanding of how this bit of data relates to other bits of data. You see, what archaeologists find are little bitty pieces of things. So fragments of a foundation of a building or pieces of pottery or, in some cases, texts, of course. But most of what archaeologists find are like pieces of a puzzle that have to be reassembled. They have to be assembled on a small scale to get an understanding of the site, but then the understanding of the site has to be related to what we think we know or what we know about other sites. And how does that then relate to what the Bible says? Does it appear to support it? Does it raise questions? Or does it open the door for some people who would like to challenge the Bible to be able to do so. So what I mean is that if someone says that an archaeologist found something that proved the Bible true, they're probably overgeneralizing or at least overstating what an archaeologist would say about their site. How has archaeology, how was it viewed prior to the 20th century in contrast to how it's largely viewed today? Yeah, and this is really the essence of what we've been talking about because we can look at archaeology through a couple of different lenses, if you will, through filters. And the way that archaeology has been mostly understood for most of history is through the lens of history. That is to say, you know, we look at something, we find something, we say, how does this fit historically? Does it prove X true or prove Y true or does it not? But about the middle of the 20th century, the way archaeologists think about their work began to change. And so gradually over the second half of the 20th century, viewing archaeology through the lens of history has been replaced by viewing it through the lens of things like anthropology or economics or sociology, so that the goal in the minds of most archaeologists is not to prove history true or false, but rather to elucidate the world of the Bible, to understand the way people lived, how they related to one another, the kinds of activities that they engaged in, the foods that they ate, the kind of furniture they had or didn't have, to get a picture of the way of life of people. And that understanding often helps to elucidate the scriptures, that is to say, help us to understand the scriptures better, even if it can't prove that a specific event happened the way that the Bible describes it. So, just to give a really brief example here, let's say we're excavating a city and the city was clearly burned at a certain time And the Bible tells us that the Israelites burned cities in this area at that time. So we might look at that and say, well, it's obvious that if the Bible says the Israelites burned a city around that time, and here we have a city that's burned around that time, obviously the Israelites were the ones who burned it. And that may well be a correct conclusion. But in the ancient world, there are a lot of things that cause us fires. For example, earthquakes. They used oil and open flames in lamps with a lot of wood around in the walls and in the ceiling. So 
fires could begin very easily. They weren't necessarily limited to military destruction. So the fact that the city was burned at the time the Bible said the Israelites burned a city in that area lends support to the biblical text, but it doesn't actually prove it. And even if the city were destroyed by military action, it wouldn't tell us who did the destroying. So that's what those are the kind of problems that archaeologists deal with, that there are alternative explanations that some people will argue that could be correct. And the same thing goes when it comes to so-called disproving the Bible. They'll offer an alternative explanation that could, in theory, be correct. The question is, is it reasonable or not? All that contributes to the challenge of interpreting archaeological data and making sense of it when it comes to understanding the Bible, and then how we use that data when we preach and teach and witness to people is yet another question. Why do we need to understand that the archaeological data is really very limited? Because I think there's a tendency on the part of well-intentioned people to exaggerate what we sometimes know. Archaeologists have to have good imaginations. One of my archaeologist friends has always said that the number one criteria for being a good archaeologist is to have a a good imagination because you only find little bits of information. You have to put them together to reconstruct something and imagine what it looked like, whether it's a city or a building or whatever it is that that you're finding, even a piece of art. And you know, the fact that I have a good imagination and that I can put the pieces together and come up with something reasonable doesn't necessarily mean that, that my imagined answer is correct. There are always other possibilities. And that's why it's important to understand the limits of what archaeology can do. And the limits are usually connected to the questions that we ask. So, for example, if we ask a historical question, there are a different set of limitations than if we ask an anthropological question. And they're different still, for example, if we ask a religious question. So there are many places in Israel in the Old Testament where insights that are apparently orthodox, Yahwistic, faithful worshipers of the God of the Old Testament, we find things like standing stones that are prohibited for the Israelites to use in worship. And the question then becomes, if these are faithful Israelites, and every indication that we have is that they are because we don't find images of false gods there or anything like that, then why are they using standing stones? And that then forces us to go back to the text and examine the text more carefully to think about the various ways that standing stones are used in the ancient world. And being able to do all of that helps us to read the Bible more intelligently, to translate it more accurately, and then to use it for preaching and teaching more effectively. Why have so few archaeological sites been excavated? Yeah, and there are only a few. Archaeologists estimate that in Israel alone, not counting Egypt and Babylon and Syria and all the other places in the biblical world, but in Israel alone, there are something like 6,000 potential archaeological sites. Of those, probably about 10% 
have been touched at all so far. And of that 10%, probably less than 10% of most of those sites have actually been fully excavated. And the reasons are manifold. For example, archaeology is very slow and tedious and hard work. You, know, you go out for hours and hours in the heat of the day and work very hard digging and reconstructing things, and it takes a long time to do it, which means, of course, that it's also very expensive. So we've been only doing archaeology in the modern sense of that term for about 150 years. I was talking with a friend of mine who's excavating a large site in the north of Israel, and I asked him how it was going, and he was telling me about their work and the progress they were making. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, if we keep this good progress that we have now, we could be finished with this site in another 2,000 years. So it gives you an idea of the challenge that archaeologists face, uh, simply because of the, the amount of work it takes, how long it takes, how expensive it is. And that's why so few sites have been excavated. There are other reasons as well. For example, many sites are under modern cities. So you really can't excavate an ancient site that's underneath a modern site. And that's one of the challenges in excavating in places like Jerusalem, for example. It's very hard to excavate in Jerusalem. Typically, most archaeological work around Jerusalem happens when construction is occurring. You want to build a new building, you dig a foundation, well, you're in the middle of an archaeological site, and the building is held up for a year or two while the archaeologists investigate that site. And, of course, that creates all sorts of problems. There are other problems in Jerusalem, political and economic, that make it difficult. But that just gives you an idea of the challenges that archaeologists face and why it takes so long to get results. And most archaeologists are not full-time archaeologists. Most archaeologists have other jobs. They work in museums. They're college professors. And they only excavate for four or six or eight weeks out of the year. And then they spend the rest of the year analyzing what they've done, publishing the results, and so forth. So it's a very time-consuming task, very expensive task, and very challenging to do and do well. Dr. David Adams is our guest. We're talking about the limits of archaeology. On the other side, why does the digging itself go so slow? It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. 
you can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. Essential exercise for the Christian mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church, Albany, Oregon, is a mid-Willamette Valley LCMS congregation where the liturgy lives and God's people worship as one with sound biblical doctrine, weekly communion, and a clear confession of Christ crucified for the sin of the world. Please join us at 2515 Queen Avenue Southeast or visit our website at www.holycrosslutheranalbany.org. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The schools division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking with Dr. David Adams, author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Limits of Archaeology, What It Can't Tell Us. Dr. Adams, before the break you were talking about how arduous a task that archaeology often is. Why does the digging itself go so slow? Why is it done with brushes and not spades? <laughs> or caterpillars, right? Well, the thing about archaeology is that it's destructive. You can only dig something up one time. And once you've done it, you, you lose the context. So if you dig something, you find a wall, and you want to keep going, you, you go below that wall. You have to take that wall out. It's no longer there. And now you've lost the ability to look at that wall or analyze it. So as a result, archaeologists are required they must, by virtue of the nature of the task, keep very painstaking records of where every significant thing is found. And that's very slow, tedious work. And then you have to, as I said, assemble that data into an understanding of the broader site as time goes on. So it's slow work because, a, you can miss stuff, and sometimes you can miss important things if you go too fast. You can destroy stuff if you go too fast. For example, I was digging in Syria one time, and we found a floor that was made up of, of kind of pebbles. And it was really, really hard to see. It would have been very easy if it had been going quickly just to take my shovel and go through that floor and never know that it was there. And then I would have missed the fact that there was a habitation layer there, a building and a whole level associated with that building. And I would have missed it completely if I'd been going very quickly. So you have to go slowly in order to keep appropriate records and be sure that you don't miss things that are important along the way. Why do we also need to understand that the archaeological data are ambiguous? Well, I kind of touched on that a moment ago when I was talking about finding a city that was burned. 
Archaeology provides data, but it doesn't really necessarily, and this is why it's important to keep records, you need to understand the context in which things are found. You know, the fact that I found something is significant, but where I found it is significant too. So I'll give you a quick example. We were digging in a site once, and there were no weapons of any kind in the site that we found. One day, we found a knife. It was an iron-bladed knife, and the knife was inside a piece of pottery. That is to say, there was broken pottery below it, and then the knife, and then there was broken pottery above it. It was the same pot. And the only way that that knife could have gotten there would have been if the knife was inside the pot. So that's a fact. That's data. The question then arises, why is the knife there inside that piece of pottery? How did it get to be there? Is it significant in some way? Another quick example from a similar site, we were excavating uh, the wall of a Roman era building. And uh, as one guy was kind of leaning against the wall resting, a brick fell out of the wall. And in the middle of the wall, there was a glass object of some sort made of very fine, very beautiful glass. And so we spent the rest of the day, took four of us the entire afternoon to get the piece of glass out unbroken. But you have to ask the question then, why in the world would somebody put a glass container inside of a wall, inside of a brick wall? So was this a religious thing? It couldn't have been accidental because the glass was in too good of a condition. It wasn't broken glass that just got thrown around. So somebody put that glass in the wall for a purpose. Was it to hide it because the glass had had something valuable in it at some point? Was it a religious custom? So we have data, but the data is ambiguous. It doesn't really answer a question directly. It gives us data that we have to use in order to build up a picture of the way things were. And sometimes what we find creates more questions than it provides answers. That's what we mean when we say data can be ambiguous. So do you have other examples of the ambiguity of archaeological data where the facts are what they are, but you simply do not know how they apply to the original situation that you're uncovering? I'll give you a very famous example. I'll try to keep this short. In the city of Hazor, H-A-Z-O-R, in the north of Israel, one of the most famous archaeological sites in Israel, a big, very important site, not mentioned a lot in the Bible, but obviously very important at the time of the Exodus. And before that, it was the largest and most important city in Canaan at the time of the conquest. And there's a royal palace there, and the royal palace was destroyed by fire. That's not contestable. The palace was clearly heavily destroyed by fire. Now, for reasons I won't bother to go into here, archaeologists are pretty sure that the palace was destroyed by fire between, say, 1250 and 1200 B.C. Now, the question is, who destroyed it, and why. Now, if you believe in the late date of the Exodus, as most Israeli archaeologists do, that would put the book of Joshua right around 1200. And the book of Joshua, 
chapter 12, I think, if I remember correctly, we're told that the city of Hatzor was burned by the Israelites. And so here we've got a palace that was burned. If that palace was burned by the Israelites, then that would support the late date of the Exodus rather than the traditional date of the Exodus around 1450. But there are other people who were in the same area who were also engaged in military activity. So there's this group that are known popularly as the Sea Peoples who swept through the area and destroyed many cities around the same time. So maybe Hatzor wasn't destroyed by the Israelites around 1200. Maybe it was destroyed by the Sea Peoples around 1200. And if that's the case, then the destruction of the palace at Hatzor doesn't give us any information that helps us understand when the date of the Exodus was. So we have the destroyed palace It's clear, it's unambiguous that it was destroyed by fire, but how that relates to the biblical account of the burning of Hatzor and how that relates to the date of the Exodus can't be answered just on the basis of that destroyed building alone. As I said, if you prefer the late date of the Exodus, it's very appealing to say that Joshua and the Israelites burned that palace. That fits the biblical narrative. But if you prefer the early date of the Exodus, then Joshua and the Israelites couldn't have burned the palace. Maybe it burned down because it just caught on fire. Maybe it burned down because of an earthquake. Maybe it burned down because the citizens of the town revolted against the rulers because only the ruling area of the city appears to have been destroyed. Or maybe it was the Sea Peoples who swept through and destroyed it. So that's a good and actually very important example of how ambiguous the data can be sometimes. And sometimes people in their enthusiasm make claims that the Bible would support something based on data that's actually fairly ambiguous like that. So how is archaeological data useful to history? Well, it's useful to help us understand the context. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 17, we have the account of David and Goliath. And we're told the Philistines were invading there. And we have an archaeological site that probably represents the fortress of King Saul at that time. And the account in 1 Samuel 17 is very sparse. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. And excavating the site can help us understand the context of that narrative. Why were the Philistines invading? What were they trying to accomplish? Why didn't they conquer the other city in the area, Azekah? We read, for example, in that account in 1 Samuel 17, that Goliath looks up and says, who will come down and fight me? Well, in that case, the fortress of Saul is up on a ridge. So it seems to fit the biblical narrative very well that Goliath would say, who will come down and fight me? So seeing that there was a major military encampment there that the Israelites had apparently built in order to stop the Philistines and to control the border with the Philistines where it was located, all helps us to understand the political situation, the historical context of the account of David's encounter with Goliath. It helps to elucidate and to translate correctly. The ESV 
for example, make some loose, probably poor translational choices because they didn't understand the geography and the context of the area. And so they made some choices that weren't technically wrong, but you could look at the terrain and what's there and you can say the way they translate it's probably a little misleading. And so archaeology can be helpful for those kind of corrections as well. We'll talk about some other ways that archaeology can be helpful, especially when it comes to the existence of the Davidic dynasty in the Old Testament with Dr. David Adams. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Jesus describes baptism as new birth. Dr. Richard Davenport, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, the baptismal river, studying the sacrament throughout scripture. As big a deal as your own birth was, this should be that much and more. Learn more about this new Bible study, The Baptismal River, at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Smartest listeners in radio, you're listening to Issues Etc., Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. David Adams is our guest. We're talking about the limits of archaeology. Dr. Adams, you were talking about how archaeology can elucidate certain historical facts. There, you also cite an example of the Davidic dynasty that up until recently, many scholars doubted even the existence of David and his family. But you also point out that at Tell Down in 1993, there was an inscription uncovered that changed all that. Tell us about it. Yeah. One of the things that happened about the middle of the 20th century was there was this movement in the study of the Old Testament that a group of scholars who argued that there was no evidence for David at all. Most of the reason behind that is that most of the sites that were excavated were in the north. They weren't in Judah. They were in the north. And so you wouldn't necessarily expect to find as much 
information there that would help us understand David's period. And then in the 1990s, in Tel Dan, which is the very north of Israel, uh, it's right up with the, near the border of Lebanon today, they found an inscription that referred to the house of David. And so it seems incontrovertible to most people that a reference to the house of David would be a reference to the royal divinic dynasty, the house in the sense of the royal dynasty of those who descended from him. And of course, if there's a Davidic dynasty, it's very likely that there was a David who was the founder of that dynasty. Some people have attempted to argue against that by saying house of David really refers not to a royal dynasty, but to a temple, a house, a house, a temple of and, and they want to see David not as the name of a king, but as the name of a god. The fact that we don't have any god by that name in the ancient Near East that we know of <laughs> makes that unlikely. But you know, they've attempted to argue around that. But now, you know, we're 20, 30 years down the road after that discovery, almost everybody, even except for the most liberal people, almost all liberal scholars would acknowledge, yes, there must have been some kind of historical David. They won't necessarily admit that the Bible's narrative about David is correct, but they will say, well, we can probably conclude that there was a real historic figure named David who founded a royal dynasty, and we can make that claim based on the fact that we have reference to this house of David. By the way, since then, there have been other discoveries that have also buttressed the idea of a Davidic dynasty at the time the Bible claims that there was. So that's not the only piece of data that we have now. We've subsequently found additional data that supports the existence of a historical David. Let's discuss the fact that biblical archaeology is a very young discipline. What should we know there? Well, people have been interested in the Holy Land you know, since the beginning, really. And in the first couple of centuries of the early church, there was a considerable interest of people who went to the Holy Land to identify sites. And one of the most famous of these people was the mother of Emperor Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor. I think most people would know that. St. Helena, as she's known today, discovered many of the sites or identified many of the sites that we think of today. So she identified the location that's now the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. She identified the site that was the place that's now the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. And when I say that she identified them, what she did was record what people told her. She didn't do any excavating or anything. But so there were early on in the history of the church, there was considerable interest in the land of Israel and what we can learn from it. But as time went on and as people began to interpret the Bible in a more symbolic way using allegory, they were less concerned with history as a result. So starting in about the fourth century and until almost the time of Martin Luther, there was very little interest in the Holy Land. So there were occasional travelers and they sometimes kept records, but there was nothing really significant that happened 
from an archaeological perspective for a thousand years, roughly, of the history of the church. And it all had to do with the fact that they had interpreted the Bible in a way that made history more or less irrelevant. But when we get to the lead-up to the Reformation uh, in the Renaissance, there is a, re there's an, uh, uh, a rebirth of an interest in the ancient world. And so people began to take an interest in the land of Israel again. And there, there wasn't really scientific archaeology, but there were travelers who went there and brought back things and described things. And the event that actually triggered what we think of as modern archaeology was Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in the 1790s. And when Napoleon invaded Egypt, he took along a whole group of scholars with him who were not military people, but language people, architects, art people, and so forth, to study what he found. And they published a huge collection, I think it's like 16 or 20 volumes in its various editions, of the things that were found by them. And also as part of that, the uh, tablet that was used to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics was found and brought back to Europe as well eventually. So starting around 1800, there began to be an increased interest in the Holy Land again, but it was not organized or conducted in any sort of scientific way. A lot of it was kind of, let's go find stuff that we can put in museums so that people can look at it. Or they were more concerned with what they found that they could put in museums or treasures than they were with scientific knowledge. And gradually, in the second half of the 19th century, and particularly toward the beginning of the 20th century, in the, maybe the last quarter of the 19th century, scholars begin to argue that just grabbing stuff and bringing it back to Berlin or London or Paris and shoving it in a museum, that doesn't really help us understand the ancient world very much. And so they began to take more care, to be more careful in recording things, to be more analytical about what they were finding, to be more systematic in their approach rather than kind of just wandering around picking up stuff. And that really then leads to the development of what we think of as modern archaeology. So the birth of modern archaeology really doesn't go back, if at all, much before 1850 and probably the later 1800s. And over the course of the 20th century, the science of archeology, span if you will, the methodology, the recording, and the analysis all begins to grow and develop very gradually over the course of the 20th century. So that's why we say that really the history of archeology span is only about 150 years long. Discuss the limits of the dating methods that are sometimes used in archaeology. Well, the dating method that most people are familiar with is carbon-14 dating, or radiocarbon dating. And one of the challenges of radiocarbon dating is we now know that carbon-14 is not deposited in organic material at the same rate all the time. And so when radiocarbon debating was developed in the 1950s, it was just assumed that the, de the level of deposits of the data was a constant. And so the analysis that was done made an assumption about how much there should be, and if there was less than that, 
then that helps us to narrow down the date. The less carbon-14 it is, the older the find was. But if, as it turns out, carbon-14 is not deposited at a constant rate, then it becomes a much bigger margin of error when it comes to calculating the date. Now, what's happened over the course of the 20th century is that they've begun to map out and see that in certain centuries, like the 8th century BC, for example, the data is just not as reliable as it was, might be in the 6th century BC. And because of sunspots or because of climate fluctuation or whatever, that dating method just doesn't work as well for that segment of time. So while carbon-14 dating is very important and helpful, we now understand that the margin of error has to be more clearly understood. And so a lot of research continues to go on to help us clarify the problems with carbon-14 dating. Carbon-14 dating is important because it can give us what we call an absolute date. So if I know that this bit of organic material died at 3,500 years ago, then I can assign a specific date on the calendar to that, plus or minus whatever the margin of error is. So we'll round this off and say, I, I could say this material was put here at say 1500 BC, plus or minus 25 years. That's very helpful. Other kinds of dating can't provide us with that absolute dating, but provide us with relative dates. So even in the biblical text, for example, there are a lot of dates that go something like this. In the third year of the reign of King X. Well, that doesn't tell us what year it was. It just tells us it was two years after the first year of King X. So if we can assign an absolute date to the first year of King X, then we can calculate out what the third year would be. So dating the ancient world is a combination of methodologies that might give us an absolute date, like carbon-14, and methodologies that give us a relative date which might include pottery, for example. Pottery, like car styles, changes over time, and you can track those changes and map out the changes. I'm old enough that I remember the 20th century, and my dad could uh, identify a car, what year, make, and model of car it was by looking at the bumper, for example, or the fender, the rear driver's side fender, because he really knew his cars, from the, particularly from the period of his youth. And because car styles change, he could look at it and say, oh, that came from a Ford Fairlane between 1950 and 1955, you know, before they changed the style again. Well, pottery allows us to do the same thing for the ancient world. We can look at it and say, the way that piece of pottery is made, the material it's made from, how it's baked, how it's decorated, the glaze or finish that's put on it, all of that tells me that it was done in Babylon in 700 BC or in that er in the area around 700 BC. So pottery is very important for dating things from the Old Testament period as well. 
The Bible and written material sometimes gives us dates. Often those are relative dates than absolute dates. But if we can connect those relative dates to absolute dates, we can build out the picture. And that's really what it's about. It's about building up the picture of the chronology of the ancient world over time. And because not everybody counts years in the same way, you know, they start New Year at a different time. I think most people are aware of the fact that in the biblical world, they often would count both ends of a three-year period. They would say 88, 89, 90, three years. And then they would say, well, okay, 90 was three years after 88. We wouldn't say that. We would say 90 is two years after 88. But they counted things differently as well. So understanding all that helps us to build up a picture of the chronology of the ancient world from the data that we gather from archaeology and its related subjects. We're talking about the limits of archaeology. Dr. David Adams is our guest professor of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. When we come back, do these dating methods shed any light on the age of the earth? This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with spiritual blackmail, the gospel comes to Thessalonica, noble Bereans, Paul in Athens Part 1, and Paul in Athens Part 2. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting lcms.org slash stewardship expert guests expansive topics extolling christ you're listening to issues etc when you hear the word heresy what do you think of do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter there's a lot more to heresies than you might think And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org slash witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom. And we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. So we are waiting for the day when sin will be completely gone. We also know that Christ has already died for our sins and forgives us those sins now. We are looking for what God has promised to do for us in the future. 
But God is also already at work in the world now, even though we are still living with sin in our lives because Christ hasn't returned. We are already seen as sinless by him because the sins we have are forgiven. That's from the Issues Etc., a book of the month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. It's a study of baptism, and it was great for Bible class, for home study as well. You can find out all about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order The Baptismal River, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We're discussing the limits of archaeology with Dr. David Adams. Dr. Adams, before the break, you were talking about these dating methods that archaeologists use. You and I are both affirm the six-day creation account in Genesis and a relatively young Earth. Do these dating methods shed any light on that issue? Again, it's difficult because of the margin of error. So, for example, carbon-14 dates are not much good before 5000 BC. Every century, the margin of error gets larger. And you get to a point where you know, the margin of error is so great that it's really not particularly useful information anymore. Not only that, but the organic material can be corrupted by being soaked in water, for example, that throws off the data because it will leach out some of the carbon-14 material from the biological material as it decays in the water. Even touching it with your hands can mess up the dating. So when we found biological material, we wanted to date by carbon-14. We could not touch it with our hands. We had to pick it up with the tip of a, of a little trowel and then put it in a secure dry box and make sure that no moisture got to it, that no oil from our hands touched it. Because if any of those things happened, it became worthless for dating because it messed up the carbon-14 profile. There are other forms of dating as well that have been developed, some having to do, for example, with counting the rings of trees and understanding the growth pattern of trees in the ancient world. And, and other kinds of things, there's a, a new technique that they you try to use on dating materials made of stone if they have iron content in them by seeing how the iron particles line up where the position of magnetic north pole was. The problem with all those kinds of techniques is that there's no way to double check the data. Up until about 4000 BC, 5000 BC, and particularly after the invention of writing about 3500 BC, you can compare the material that is created by the scientific study of these things with the text, and you can help to correct the errors that have arisen in the techniques like carbon-14 that we were just talking about. We can't do that when we get before about 3,500 BC or later because we have no written text. And as we go further back than that, the data becomes increasingly ambiguous. So a lot of these dates that you hear, like 50,000 BC or so forth, that's just whistling in the wind. It's an educated guess on the part of somebody who makes a lot of assumptions about whether, for example, things have always changed at the same rate 
rather than changing suddenly or, or some catastrophic event that brings about a major change occurring. And so most of those dates, much before 5,000 or at the most 10,000 BC, they're virtually worthless for any kind of serious discussion about ancient chronology. What has been the most interesting archaeological dig that you've been involved with and why? Well, I I haven't been involved in that many, okay? Uh, I excavated a site in Syria for a year and then a site in Israel for four years. I visited a great many archaeological sites in Israel and other places. But if you're talking about my own personal experience as someone who has helped out in archaeology, uh, for me it would have to be the site in Israel called Kirbet Kayafa, the one that I was talking about earlier where the battle between David and Goliath occurred, simply because it's a fascinating site in and of itself. It's not typical of an ancient site because it's a dedicated military fort rather than a village. It also has a significant connection to a biblical narrative. It raises questions for us about the geopolitical environment and the relations between the Philistines and and the Israelites during the reign of Saul. And, you know, the fact that they abandoned this site in the middle of David's reign raises questions as well. Why would they abandon this military site? Well, it wasn't destroyed. It wasn't burned down. It wasn't conquered. There are no arrowheads or anything like that there that would suggest military activity. So it was almost certainly abandoned. Was it abandoned because of disease? Was it abandoned for some other reason? Personally, I think it was abandoned because they didn't need it anymore, because David had developed relations with the Philistines so that they didn't need that strong border guard post anymore. And so they just abandoned it because it wasn't needed. But for me personally, that's a site that I love to visit when I go to Israel and walk around. It's a relatively small site, so you can see it, but it's a fascinating site with a tremendously fascinating history that has a direct impact on a very interesting biblical narrative. So that would be my personal favorite. Everybody loves Jerusalem, so I love to wander around Jerusalem. I'm going back to Jerusalem next March for two weeks to do a special study of the archaeology of Jerusalem with some other people. So I'm really looking forward to that. I've enjoyed visiting many other sites, and I've learned so much that has helped to make the Bible alive for me. And as a teacher of the Bible, as a seminary professor, I hope that I've been able to use some of that to make the Bible a living, breathing document for my students as well, and help them not read the Bible as if it's a fairy story, as if it's just a story that exists in a vacuum, but to read it as something that bears witness to what happened to real people in real places in real times as God worked in their lives and worked to bring about the coming of the Messiah at the appropriate time. Finally, do we need archaeology to validate the Christian faith? No, we do not. If archaeology never existed, it would not matter in terms of the Christian faith. This takes us back to that apologetics question that you asked at the beginning. There is an apologetics value to archaeology, but it's not 
in persuading or forcing people to believe the Bible. The apologetics value is in showing some of the claims that other people make are not reasonable or wrong in some cases. So no one should believe in Jesus or trust in the Bible because of an archaeological discovery. That would be doing what Thomas did when he said he would only believe in Jesus when he could put his hand in the wounds in Jesus' side. We believe and trust in Christ by faith. Faith is not seeing. Faith is believing. So whether archaeology tends to prove the Bible correct or whether it raises questions that we can't currently answer based on what we know today should have no effect at all on whether I trust in Jesus for my salvation. Again, to the extent that it shows that some other people's claims are false, it can be helpful in showing people how they might have been misled along the way by someone else. But it doesn't really bolster our faith, and we shouldn't expect it to. Dr. David Adams is professor of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, He's author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Limits of Archaeology, What It Can't Tell Us. You can receive an annual print and a digital subscription to the Lutheran Witness magazine for less than $20. Learn more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness magazine. Dr. Adams, thank you. It's always great to be with you, Todd. Thank you very much for having me today. We continue our series, Kids Have Questions, talking about relationships with Pastor Jonathan Connor in the next hour. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.